Time by CO. That's spelled T S I O. The T is silent, the H is invisible, but the sound is quality. Wisla Mala. Wisla Mala, Polish, Wisla Mawa, little Vistella, German, Deutsch Wisla, German Vistella, is a village in the administrative district of Gemina Pizigna, with Pizigna country, Sicilian. In southern Poland, it lies approximately 12 kilometers, seven miles, west of Pinsnikia and 37. Holy Lord. Let me try this again. This is the worst thing. Okay. And take two on Wisla Myla. Here we go. Wisla Myla in Polish, Little Vistilla and German, German Vistilla is a village in the administrative district of Gemina Piznica with Piznica County, Sicilian Vidlship. In southern Poland, it lies approximately 12 kilometers, 7 miles, west of a town I can't pronounce, and 37 miles, 23... Wait, no, fuck, fuck, fuckity, fuck! The following will be of no assistance to an Abercrombie, but we're sure it will help most people a great deal. How jive-wise are you? Here are 10 typical questions. 
Number 10, is your head chica technicolor gal? Number 9, can you play a potato masher or a slipstick? Number 8, is there a gangbuster with a two-way stretch in your home? Number 7, did you ever spin a wren? Number 6, have you a mire in your coffee bags? Number 5. Are you surprised to learn that many wear second fronts? Number 4. Can you distinguish between red eye and red ink? Number 3. Have you ever heard of a pussy with a fluid drive? Number 2. Would you like to be described as having a coke frame? And Number 1. When was the last time you went table topping in Sacramento? Five minutes past twelve midnight. tickets now right because by the time like the the 30th one comes out movies are going to be what you know six bucks right from sacramento the heart of california and around the world genuine modern radio radio flom I still remember when I came out of the First World War, I thought everything would snap back as it has been before, but all of a sudden I became aware that I would have to take part in something completely new. That couldn't be done by one person alone. You have to build up a whole school which follows certain principles out of which it may develop. And that gave me the idea, the basic idea for organizing the Bauhaus. Walter Gropius. Bauhaus Reviewed. 1919-1933. LTM Recordings. 2007. The interesting thing was that the student in the stimulating atmosphere of the Bauhaus produced above his average because he was so stimulated by the common effort. Alba says the very rare quality of a teacher who treated every student in a different way. When the student was unsafe of himself and he couldn't swim yet, so to speak, he pushed him into the water and when he started drowning, then he got him and he was open for advice. And I could also state in my experience that the younger men 
is always closer to the future than the old man. He is not yet articulate, but he feels the trend where it goes to, and so the older man should listen to him. We worked quietly the day before the trial. Our class was in Kandinsky's atelier with its view of the city's buildings and the sea of trees over at the beach forest. Master Itten was working to the director in his workshop. We'd been left without a teacher and given junk from the scrap heap to demonstrate varying textures. It was a task designed to keep us occupied. Naomi Wood, The Hiding Game, Picador, London, 2019. Well, unfortunately, uh, it doesn't yet have an American publisher, um, but I think, how did you find it? You, did you find it on Amazon.co.uk? I found it on Amazon, and since the pound is so low, uh, I got it for a really good price. Did you? Wow, there you go. Yeah. There's a plug. <laughs> and, well, in the U.S., not a lot of people know what the Bauhaus is. Like, when I go into a class, there's they're like, okay, there's a goth band. I was like, okay, that's a start. Yeah. It it was interesting getting some feedback from American publishers because obviously my second book is about Hemingway, so he's your man, right? Um, And then some of the feedback from publishers was um, the Bauhaus is a bit niche. Yeah. But, but, But in Europe, I guess... I mean, the Bauhaus right now is kind of everywhere, right? With the centenary year. Like, it's on the TV, it's on the radio, it's in everything you read. Uh, So the awareness now of it is just extraordinary. But I like to think as well that the book, it's set in the Bauhaus and it's very interested in the Bauhaus. But the operational design is actually about relationships. It's about friendships. Radio Flombs. Steve Mayallo talks to author Naomi Wood. I am interested in the Bauhaus, but you don't need to know anything about the Bauhaus to read the book. After you finish, hopefully you'll be educated about what this art school movement meant. But primarily it's about what happens to a group of friends under pressure. Uh, Because when I did my master's in creative writing at UEA in Norwich in, in the UK, uh, I was in one of those tight-knit groups and everything went wrong. You know, everybody was sleeping with the wrong people and, <laughs> you know, betrayals and kind of at least, you know, we didn't have the right wing kind of smashing in yeah. the doors. But um, that was kind of, to me, it's the kind of heightened the melodrama and the emotion of uh, being in this hot house of creativity and that can be really exciting but it can also be really you know nerve-wracking for the first few days i had wondered where the fast might take her i knew charlotte would want to escalate things that it was not in her nature to keep things still privately i had hoped that our empty stomachs might draw us together we might do our breathing exercises light candles, and in the magic lantern of a fasted afternoon, we'd finally, lazily, instinctively end up in bed, too weak to resist temptation a moment longer. Hours of hunger would tip us together, we'd apex, we'd roll around. I love historical fiction. I love historical fiction as a way to get history out there. And you did something wonderful with this book. I could compare it to the Titanic, putting a story right in the middle of uh, 
this historical thing that usually is just in a history book. So how did you end up at the Bauhaus? So I had finished my second novel, Mrs. Hemingway, which was an exploration of the lives of Hemingway's uh, women and wives. And I went to the Barbican exhibition uh, of the Bauhaus. And uh, I was I was quite familiar with the movement and um, what it had produced and the kind of famous, I guess, men who had come out of the of the art school. Um, and when I went along to the exhibition and I saw a photograph of a group of students at the Metal Ball, and again, five or six of them, and they just looked fantastic, you know, as as you all know, those photographs of the students dressed up as skyscrapers and antennae and, you know, cutlery and automobiles. And I thought, wow, they look so happy. You know, they look really joyous. And uh, you could just kind of see all that all that happiness kind of radiating off them. And then because I am a novelist and I do these things, I kind of corrupted them instantly. And I thought, oh, but what's the dark side? What's the menace behind this group of friends? And that's where the idea came from. And I wanted, I had read The Secret History as well, and I kind of wanted to do a kind of secret history set at the Bauhaus. So I thought, okay, if I took this group of friends, these six friends, and corrupted them and um, caught them up in the tide of a historical movement, which is obviously going to end tragically in the 1930s. So I saw this picture and I thought, this is a great jumping off point for a novel. And so I finished the rest of the exhibition and uh, I was a little bit daunted by writing a novel about art history because I'm not an artist and I'm not an art historian. When I visited Weimar, I was on the train and I was coming from Frankfurt and I still remember looking out to see the city uh, and I hadn't realized what a pretty city it was. It's just gorgeous. It's really, really impressive. And then you look to the left and you can see the Buchenwald chimney and you kind of think like, wow, how did that happen? You know, like for us, it would be the equivalent of kind of Cambridge on the right and then, you know, concentration camp on the left. And you just think it's extraordinary that those two things, you know, coexisted for a time. But what solidified the idea for me was actually going to the Bauhaus in Dessau. Several things kind of slotted into place because obviously in Weimar, you have this kind of fruity esoteric period and then it moves into the kind of rationalism and you know art the the experimentation in a kind of laboratory but what that doesn't tell you is that it or what it doesn't give you is the feeling of what it was like to be in the school have you been to the school i haven't been to the school it's like i'm viewing from afar okay so being in the school it didn't metamorphosize but it kind of concretized what I was trying to do because when you're in the school I hadn't been aware that it was so that it was a city of glass really that you could constantly see and be seen and that was envisaged by Gropius as a positive thing but I again I kind of manipulated that into the negative that it was kind of like a like surveillance um and just it's just small things you know so I had a sleepover at at the Bauhaus which is fantastic it was about 40 euros to stay overnight and stepping out on the balcony of one of the students rooms I I realized that they were cantilevered uh 
downward and that it was a terribly kind of vertiginous feeling that you were out on the balcony felt like you were about to fall off. And so there are loads of kind of tiny bits of little bits of menace that I, I got from just simply being in the place itself. I think you can't underestimate how brilliant it is to to go somewhere and kind of, I mean, so much of the novel came out of that primary experience of being able to see the school and walk around it. And another thing I found was that the building was very confusing um, with its kind of three prongs. You're never quite sure where you are in relation to the other bits of the building. And I hadn't really, you know, I thought because it was... Um, born of this kind of idea that it was going to be terribly utilitarian that it would be simply very easy to to follow and orientate yourself but what I actually found was that it was quite confusing as, as to how the bits linked together so again that that created the mood in the book that's that's something I love about early modern everything I look at it it's like these little baby steps into things modernism didn't really start to make sense until after the Bauhaus because they were experimenting so much yeah they're in their own um they're in their own little worlds where the values of what they're producing and the process of how they're making things seems so terribly important that the rest of the world kind of drops away mm-hmm. it kind of fades away and i think some sometimes i think we can be guilty of that we can be culpable of not quite paying attention to what's really going on around us because kind of the artistic process is kind of occupying us so much. That's happening so much today. Yeah. We've created our own little bubbles that we're living in. I I don't know. I don't know whether the history of artists is one perhaps of disengagement. There's a kind of enrapturement with the aesthetic rather than with the political perhaps, or whether that's more true of certain decades than others. Speaking as a teacher, I see a lot of that all the uh, a lot of the time. Uh, what really resonated with me was Itten's paper assignment. Mm-hmm. The solution in there, of course, is what you're looking for in the class. And mm-hmm. I had a professor who did something just like that. It was like he rejected everyone's work. In fact, that's how I teach. I go in and I look for the reasonably innovative thinking. Mm. And then everyone hates that student and wants to kill them. But <laughs> it's like, here, work with this. And most people will do the obvious. And what's the what, what makes the one student who approaches the problem differently, how is he or she different from the others? What motivates them that, to do something innovative rather than I've trained? seen so many different forms of that. Some of it is usually just fed up with being in school. Mm-hmm. It's like, I hate this assignment. I'm going to do this. And that will lead to it. But, well, my first approach is don't do the obvious. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always work because mm-hmm. I'm a graphic designer and mm-hmm. clients need things mm-hmm. that I need mm-hmm. to communicate. Because so if you're going to do anything new and innovative, you kind of have to break everything. Are you, are you of this school of thought where... Uh, students have to be trained in the ground rules first before they break everything? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, At one point I was um, explaining my classes as left brain, right brain. Half the time I'm going to do one approach, half the time I'm going to do the other. So you're going to be pissed off 50% of the time. And it's, it's almost like you have to sniff the room and go, okay, what's, what's going to work here? What's going to, uh, get the results that uh, they need to find. 
And a lot of times it's like, stop doing what everyone else is doing. Mm. Uh, my, my first assignment in the Bauhaus course is I just throw asymmetry at them. I, I want them to design something that's not harmonious. And they all go out and come up with something harmonious. <laughs> sort of asymmetrically harmonious? Uh, no. So I give them something that it's designed to really unnerve you. And they do the safest thing imaginable, the entire class to start out. It's so hard to be unorthodox. Yes, it is. So uh, I teach creative writing in workshop at UEA. And so I'm dealing with postgraduates who are, you know, they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And they're really fantastic writers. And it was so interesting to me to learn about the Bauhaus because it changed the way I thought about writing, the way I thought about teaching writing. And one of the things I would love to do is to rid the system of uh, our grading yeah uh, because I think it's completely disinhibits students from experimentation because if you're forever hooked on I don't mind giving feedback really lengthy feedback but I wish we didn't have to give a point score because as I said I think it results in kind of lamer work you know, tamer work. I, I wonder uh, how it's... The university is not, not going <laughs> to let me fly with that one. Over in the U.S., I don't know what the difference is. Um, we went through this thing called No Child Left Behind. No Child Left Behind was all about test, 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 test. So I get kids right out of high school worried about grades, tests, and passing tests, whether or not they learn the material. But the students obsessed with grades, it's like... It, I'm literally fighting a battle every time I walk into a classroom. It's like, is this going to be on the test? It's like everything's going to be It's on hard. The test. It's really hard. Back to the book. How did you research beyond the school? A, a really uh, important book for me to understand the how did they get there question uh, is Hans Falada's Alone in Berlin. Because you find out via the experiences of one very small family. It's a, it's a couple and they've got a daughter. Um, the main character finds the policies of the Third Reich abhorrent and disgusting. And he starts sending postcards through people's doorways, anti-Hitler messages. Um, every time he does it, and he kind of drops them around uh, Berlin, Every time he does it, you have your heart in your mouth. You just think something like writing a postcard as seditious as that. It feels terrifying. And, uh, you know, the consequences catch up with him because basically on this map, you can work out, eventually they work out where he lives. And when you think about what he puts in jeopardy, which is his pregnant daughter, his wife's life, his life. When I read that book, I was just like, I wouldn't have done a thing, you know, because yeah. it was just, I wouldn't have done a thing to save anyone else. I would have just kept quiet because you can see through his tiny actions, the the terrible consequences. And for me, that book absolutely dramatized the, the lot of the average German, you know, it doesn't explain why so many people voted in the first place. Mm -hmm. For them, apart from they were desperate for some kind of economic uh, panacea after after the Wall Street crash and after you know the problems of the 1920s, and a lot of people vote for repugnant people and swallow the kind of difficult 
um, personality traits for, say, a strong economy and, and their jobs and things. No comment on your current uh, president or anything. <laughs> it, but I think, yeah, reading that book, it really enlivened to me how it how it was able to continue, I guess, and and with the students at the Bauhaus, you know, one of the critiques that they they seem surprised all of a sudden that you know Hitler's suddenly in power. But I think you know when you're wrapped up in this kind of the excitement and the glamour of of, of an art school or of youth, you can kind of bury your bury your head in the sand, or you want to. You don't want to think about things ever changing for the worse. Um, and I think. You know, look at look at students now. Yes, there's kind of, you know, youth strike for climate change and things are beginning to happen. But most young people are kind of just on their phones. <laughs> you know, they're on Instagram and they're not they're not challenging the fact that we've got 11 years left to save the planet type thing. So we are very easily hoodwinked into a state of comfort. Uh, I had a Nazi show up in my class and it was my Bauhaus course. And it was, I wanted to pick his brain. Like self-declared? Self-declared. He was part of a local group that we didn't even know existed. Eventually he just came to class and said, this is communist. And he, he stopped showing up. So I, I didn't get a chance to pick his brain at all. Uh, he was just a very angry guy. And if you think about it, if you're just sort of going through life and you're angry, blaming someone else seems to be the easiest route to go. I had a great translator called Kate Briggs talk and she was saying, she's kind of arguing for the fact that just because she has an opinion doesn't mean she is assumed she is unassailably right. And it's like, that's what we need in politics right now. Like I have an opinion, which is different from yours. Yeah. And that's okay. <laughs> you know, like, I might be wrong, and I, I'm fine with that. But it is so binary right now. I mean, it's happening in the UK as well with this Brexit shit. You know, it's just like you are right and I am wrong, and there's no middle ground, and it's just unbearable. <laughs> Our binary thinking makes us get to the point where we're supposed to know everything, and mm. it's impossible. But also, I suppose academia, where you are the leader of a seminar class and and there is an expectation that you will be unassailably authoritative and, and right and that you will know everything and then as you get more confident you actually get more confident about expressing your ignorance or saying I, d I don't know I don't know the answer to that question or let's go look it up <laughs> number one fear of teachers they're gonna find out I don't know everything yeah and I've discussed it with students it's like no I know more than you about the subject but if you could find more than me, I'm all open to it. And you did that too. Uh, I have some paintings I have to look up that yeah. you mentioned in your book. Yeah, well, that was all that was all uh, that was all research that I had to do to 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 come across because he's obviously in his old age when he's relating the 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 stories of 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 the past. So by then he's a very seasoned artist. So I had to kind of throw up a simulacra mm -hmm. that he was very artistically literate which I, I kind of I'm not <laughs> so, so that was a big it was a big uh, effort to kind of try and work out um you know what kind of painting he would like and and um because for me all my touch points are my touchstones are, are text um 
So I think in a in a way that's a network of books rather than a network of visual images. I think that worked really well because if an artist was doing it, who would who would understand mm, it? Mm. Would it just be for artists? This is a great book for people who are not artists yeah. to find out a little bit of what was that's going good. on. And I've, I, that's great to hear. And I've had nice comments from people who've been to art school and said, oh, this is kind of what it was like. <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit less dramatic, but um, they were like, yeah, it captures something of the excitement and the seduction. Um, and also because, because so many elements of the foundation course have uh, manifested themselves in foundation calls that they recognize those elements and where for over a hundred years they think oh yeah we did something like that experiment in 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 my foundation course and it was super interesting for me because I hadn't realized what art school teaching was like before the Bauhaus and before the kind of revolution I, I hadn't realized what it had meant that it was a revolutionary art school I hadn't realized what yeah. had come before I suppose especially for women if in anything you know the kind of governesses of the world they were trained in in the crafts but there was no way that they were entering the art academy um yeah. so that was really interesting to find out their journey as well um because I know they were given admittance to some of the art academies in Munich Dresden um, but I suppose in the Bauhaus, many of those crafts were also given as much credence as, um, you know, the higher art. Uh, so it's so interesting to find out suddenly when you're at the Bauhaus, you know, you weren't going to be copying paintings and drawing from old anatomical studies of, of muscles and skeletons and things. So it just it seems like such an exciting time to be alive. <laughs> and you could count your blessings that you were alive because, you know, you'd, you'd managed to escape the horrors of the First World War. Abercrombie. Noun. I know it all. Ace. Noun. A dollar bill. Alright. Adjective. Absolutely okay. Aquarium. Noun. Domicile. Apple. Noun. The globe. Armored cow. Noun. Canned milk. Artillery. Noun. Baked beans. Bagpipe. Noun. One who talks too much or a vacuum cleaner. Barrel house. Noun. Loud music or unrestrained. Battery acid. Noun. Coffee. Bazooka from Paducah. Noun. Corny musician. Birdwood. Noun. A cigarette. Bleeding. Verb. To change the subject of a conversation. Beef. Noun. A complaint. Blinkers. Noun. Eyes. Blood. Noun, tomato juice or ketchup. BTO noun, big time operator. Bugs, noun, military, any solids found in soup. Hi, Milk Surface here, and well, I have no clue when you're listening to this, but currently is June 30th, and I 
am in the Getty Museum down in Los Angeles, California, and I am about to enter the Baja Beginnings, which is running from June 11th to October 13th. So if you can catch it, definitely try to. I heard if you can't catch it, there is a online uh, exhibition. So at least check that out if you're hearing this way later. But something smells like it's burning out here, so I'm going to head inside. So I'm in the opening area, and there is a gift shop with a bunch of, like, themed stuff. Cool little clock, actually. Uh, there's something saying that, yeah, there's an online exhibit, so definitely go check that out. Uh, there are some people who look concerned that I'm recording on my phone. And, oh, this is cool. There is a translation of the boss curriculum thing it's like this big wheel with like different tiers that shows like your first half year your three years and so on and it, it, the, the most pr prominent part of it is like clay stone wood metal textiles color and glass like the different mediums it's it's definitely something worth googling up right now if you can but that's kind of it for here so let's mosey on over into the, the actual exhibit. Oh, hey, I almost missed this through the crowd, but in this hallway into the exhibit, there's actually a timeline. It looks like it's starting with precursors in 1902, and what's that? Yeah, wrapping up things in the aftermath of 1933 cool little hallway graphic, I guess. I don't think I'm going to be able to get a full, like, picture of this, though. Alright, so there is a lot in this room I am seeing on, like, display and glass cases, but there is something that's particularly caught my eye, and that is... Let me just grab it here. It is a print of the original manifesto. This might actually be an original manifesto. It's laminated, but I'm actually getting to hold it. And let's see, it's in German, but Google Translate seems to think it's in Hawaiian. Oh, no, okay, there it goes. It's it's reading it in German now. Um, I'll let it read it for you. D A S E N D A C T. Okay, so it's having a little trouble with the title here, but it looks like it's going to read real words soon. T E T E T E R B A C T I O N T E N T I O N T E N T I O N S. Decorating him was once the foremost task of the fine arts. All right, nope. That's a nightmare. Uh, I don't know why the voice is going so slow. And I'm looking through this, and it's a lot more gibberish. For instance, it ends saying, Architecture and sculpture and painting, which will once rise from the hands of millions of craftsmen to the skies as a crystalline symbol of a new one coming faith. Um, but more that I think about everything that happened... That might actually just be pretty accurate, so who knows. But anyways, let's uh, move on. Alright, so it looks like here is the Baja Seal. Different variations. They have uh, the relief print, which is the, the first variation of the seal. Kind of like a, a wood print it incorporated, like 
traditional style and then we have the, the updated seal which was the one that really represents the style that we come to know of Bajas and it is also a lithograph print here okay what else is in here Ooh, okay and here is an original of the curriculum and it's all in German and it even includes glass spelled G-L-A-S which is going to actually be an upcoming episode of Radio Flop. Or has it already happened? I'm not sure. Time's kind of weird right now. So it looks like a lot of things in this area depict the architectural style of the school, as well as a lot of the design work for publication stuff. You know, there's a few other little things here, like teacher's notes, uh, but, you know, even some, some photos of, of the original locations and some interesting stuff. Self-sufficient peculiarity from which they can only be redeemed by conscious cooperation and interaction of all workers among themselves. Architects, painters, and sculptors must have the multifaceted figure of the building in his. To know and comprehend the whole and its parts, then will automatically fill their works with architectural spirit again. They lost in salon art. The old art schools could not produce this unity, like. They should also, because art is not teachable. You have to go back to the WeRK. S-T-A-T-T rise. This only drawing and painting world of pattern illustrators. And artisans must finally become A-B-A-U-E-D-E again. If they. Young person, who feels the love of artistic activity in himself, again. As once his train begins to learn a craft, so does they. In the future, unproductive artists will no longer be an imperfect art exercise. Damned, for his skill is now preserved to the craft where he can do excellent. A-R-C-H-E-T-E-N-B-I-L-D-H-A-U-E-R-M-A-L-E-R W-I-R-A-L-M-S-S-E-N-S Z-U-M-H-A-N-D-W-I-R-K-Z-U-U-C-K Because there is no art by profession. It. There is no essential difference between the artist and the craftsman. E-N-G-L-U-N-D-A-T-I-N-G-E-N-T-I-O-N-C-O-N-T-I-O-N-S-E-R-V-E-N-T-I-O-N-S Grace of heaven leaves in rare moments of light that are beyond its will. Standing unconsciously blossoming art from the work of his hand, D-I-E-G-R-A-N-D-L-A-G-E-D-E-S-W-O-R-K-M-A-N-G-I-O-N-E-S-I-N-E-S-I-N-E-S-I-N-E-S Artist There is the fountainhead of creative creation. So, let's make A-N-E-U-E-F-O-U-R-T-H-E-D-H-E-R-D-E-R-K-E-R without the Class divisive arrogance that wanted to build a haughty wall between craftsmen and artists. Let's imagine, let's create the new construction of the future, which will be everything in the future. Architecture and sculpture and painting, which will once rise from the hands of millions of craftsmen to the skies as a crystalline symbol of a new one. Coming faith. D-A-S-E-N-D-A-C-T-I-O-N-T-E-T-E-T-I-O-N-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-R-B-A-C-T-I-O-N-T-E-N-T-I-O-N-T-E-N-T-I-O-N-
self-sufficient peculiarity from which they can only be redeemed by conscious cooperation and interaction of all workers among themselves. Architects, painters, and sculptors must have the multifaceted figure of the building in his. To know and comprehend the whole and its parts, then, will automatically fill their works with architectural spirit again. They lost in salon art. The old art schools could not produce this unity, like. They should also, because art is not teachable. You have to go back to the WeRK. STATT Rise. This only drawing and painting world of pattern illustrators. And artisans must finally become ABAUEDE again. If the young person, who feels the love of artistic activity in himself, again. As once his train begins to learn a craft, so does they. In the future, unproductive artists will no longer be an imperfect art exercise. Damned, for his skill is now preserved to the craft where he can do excellent. A-R-C-H-E-T-E-K-T-E-N-B-I-L-D-H-A-U-E-R-M-A-L-E-R-W-I-R-A-L-M-S-S-E-N-S Z-U-M-H-A-N-D-W-R-K-Z-U-U-C-K Because there is no art by profession. It There is no essential difference between the artist and the craftsman. E-N-G-L-U-N-D-A-T-I-N-G-E-N-T-I-O-N-C-O-N-T-I-O-N-S-E-R-V-E-N-T-I-O-N-S Grace of Heaven leaves in rare moments of light that are beyond its will. Standing, unconsciously blossoming art from the work of his hand, D-I-E-G-R-I-N-D. L-A-G-E-D-E-S-W-O-R-K-M-A-N-G-I-O-N-E-S-I-N-E-S-I-N-E-S-I-N-E-S-I-N-E-S. Artist. There is the fountainhead of creative creation. So, let's make A-N-E-U-E-F-O-U-R-T-H-E-D-H-E-R-D-E-R-K-E-R without the class divisive arrogance that wanted to build a haughty wall between craftsmen and artists. Let's imagine, let's create the new construction of the future, which will be everything in the future. Architecture and sculpture and painting, which will once rise from the hands of millions of craftsmen to the skies as a crystalline symbol of a new one. Coming faith. Cave. Noun. House. Charge. Noun. Marijuana cigarette. Chew. Verb. To talk. Chimer. Noun. An alarm clock. Clicker. Noun. One who has attained success. Coke frame. Noun. Attractive body build. Like a Coca-Cola bottle. College. Noun. Jail. Corn. Noun. Dated entertainment or money. Creaker. Noun. An old person. Dickaroo. Noun. Police officer. Dime note. Noun. Ten dollar bill. Dribble. Verb. To stutter or talk without coherence. Dust. Verb. To leave. You're off and running. With bright eyes shining, with bright eyes shining.
This was Teenage Death Trap with their track Heather Lock Fear. You can find more from Teenage Death Trap on SoundCloud. Radio Flom, an art movement's journey into a space down the hall. Easy. Adjective. Financially secure. I. Noun. Detective. Fanny. Noun. Rear end. Faust. Noun. Blind date. Finagle. Verb. To manipulate advantageously. Fish. Verb. To lie. Frame. Noun. The body. Frogskin. Noun. Dollar bill. Front. Noun. Your appearance. Yeah, because when I think of you, I think of color. Oh, absolutely. Big, bold, in-your-face color. Indeed. I live for that. Are you wearing green nail polish also? Yes. Me too. Great minds think alike. Prolific writer, artist, and designer, Lori Rosenwald, talks color, stripes, Swiss design, doing what you enjoy, how to make mistakes on purpose, solve problems, make money, grow up in Manhattan, chilling in Sweden, inventing Velcro, and more. How did you get to the primary colors? Was it uh, part of your upbringing? Was it uh, school? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I can't answer it, but when I look back and talk about working on <laughs> I've been working on this memoir, which is called Memoir, spelled M-E-M-W-A-H. And that will be coming out, I don't know when, but I just handed it in to my agent. I have a literary agent. And right now, he's shopping it around and taking it to publishers and editors. So it's a big moment. So anyway, um, I've been working with all of these uh, uh, pictures of me, me, me growing up, all my family pictures and whatnot. And you see in what I'm wearing, like when I was nine or 10, I, I, w I went to Paris and I brought this, I bought this bright green raincoat vinyl, like super beautiful lime green, very, very shiny raincoat at the, at their store, their store called Monoprix. And I bought, I remember this um, watch that was bright purple plastic with a mod, you know, dome kind of uh, watch with this very thick magenta, bright pink, uh, strap and uh, also very shiny vinyl or or whatever it was patent leather and so I've I, I've always liked those bright mod colors um, and I mean I guess that was the year for for those colors but I've always been interested in superficial things like I remember you know being so sad I was with my mother who didn't care about fashion or anything. Uh, but about she was into politics, and that's why we were there. It's a whole long story, but um, that I was so in love with Europe in general, Italy, and 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 when we went to Paris, I also got a, a bright orange um, a record player that looked like Minnie Mouse's handbag across mm -hmm. the toaster that you could put in a forty-five, and it would play, and then it would boing boing, and then it would pop out. It was so great. And so what's great about the internet is that I actually found a picture of the exact item so I could put it in my book. You know, I Googled until I found it and it was so fun to see it. Um, and, but a lot of those things were European, not American things, you mm -hmm. know, that I started to like at a very early age. 
And I think the colors there were, and still are, different. And in some cases, better. Yeah. I don't, I think I've always, I don't think I've ever changed. I, I just think I sort of, where these things come from is a mystery. But I used to feel guilty or bad about always being the same and liking the same things. Like I have a, I have pictures of me wearing stripes, mm-hmm. bright stripes from infancy to it. I've always worn stripes. Also, I feel the same thing about patterns. Like this bathrobe is normal, like a tartan red plaid or, you know, a sailor shirt or, you know, things that you can name. You know, this is a stripe. This is a dot. This is a plaid. I've never liked florals or things that you don't know what they are so much, but Anyway, so I have a zillion pictures of me at every possible age wearing basically the same shirt. I remember in my father's uh, house in Pennsylvania, he lived in New Hope in Pennsylvania, and there was a guest room that I stayed in when I stayed there. And there was this Miro poster that he had on the wall with the statement underneath one of Miro's really great uh, drawings, Je n'ai jamais changé, I've never changed. And I used to think, what a weird thing to brag about because I felt guilty and sad about it. But well, not being famous or a celebrity, I have the luxury of doing whatever I want and nobody noticing or caring. And what I want to do is wear stripes and like the same colors I did when I was 10. And I do. The retro thing is kind of easy. I have this assistant who wanted me to do like 80s week or something like that on Instagram, which I never ended up doing, but still might. But I, I, I collected a lot of things that I did in the 70s and 80s. And it's really fun. I, I absolutely stand by them. You know, like when I was working at Condé Nast, I was a designer there for over 20 years at different magazines. That I was at Mademoiselle, and I did the dummy for Self Magazine with Bea Feitler in 1979. And when I look at those pages that I did, I think they still stand up. I think they're really good. And I don't think, believe it or not, I don't think they look particularly dated because I was looking at, I remember I did these layouts using... Um, that I cut and pasted Herbert Beyer uh, typefaces mm-hmm. and they still look mod now, you know, and they look mod then and they probably look mod in 1920. I've always liked the same stuff. Yeah. How'd you end up on your feet in New York doing all these cool projects that we now just read about in history books? I don't know. Is- I mean, this is my hometown. So, <laughs> I mean, when I feel sorry for myself, I think about, you know, people that come from almost anywhere else can, you know, if they want to be a painter or something, go back where they came from. But I can't because I came from Manhattan. Uh, then I joke about I want to be like a big fish, you know, like a shark or a whale or something, you know, in a small pond. But it's not possible here. So um, that's one of the reasons that I like being in Sweden, because I feel slightly bigger fish in a slightly smaller pond. But it still doesn't matter. Um, but meaning, you know, I'm, I'm never going to have the exposure that I want for the things that I do. But meanwhile, I keep making stuff anyway. It's just like I wake up in the morning and I any, either I'm writing or I'm painting or I'm drawing or I'm, or, you know, whatever. Um, I can't not do lots of different things. I mean, I even made a, I, I, I even made a little film about it once called So I Fired the Shrink because years ago um, I had a writing teacher who 
was really great. And she just wanted her students to publish, you know, but I kept sending things only to the New Yorker. And she said, Lori, do you want to be happy or do you want to write for Shouts and Murmurs in the New Yorker? And I said, I want to write for Shouts and Murmurs. She said, you're really crazy. You need to go see my shrink. So she sent me to her shrink, who was a wonderful woman and said, Lori, you know, if you want to be a painter, you, you have to just set aside time to just paint. Give yourself two or three years where you're only, only painting. You go to openings, you meet people in the art world, you try to get a gallery you get your work out there and just concentrate on painting. So I fired the shrink because I know that, of course, it's much easier <laughs> if you only want to be a novelist to just do that, or you only want to be a painter, you only want to be an yeah. illustrator, you only want to be a graphic designer. But I never just, I still, you know, I'm 64 and I still haven't picked a major. I don't, to, from, to me, that's okay. just a big mush, always has been. It caused a lot of problems for me at art school when I was at RISD because, you know, that you, you're supposed to, you're like 20 or whatever, you're supposed to pick a department and that's it. And, you know, I pick graphic design because I always like, you know, letters and, and typography. And at that time, it was the Swiss style, the Swiss Miss style, you know, and you could only use universe and only use, we're talking about semiotics and vernacular and all this crap. And it was very dry and um, using big words that I didn't, you know, like doing concrete poetry. It was absolutely, you know, they were such eggheads about it. It all came from the Bauhaus, you know, and from, you know, but they, but it was not fun anymore all of a sudden. And I you couldn't use color or, or, or humor or anything. So I went into illustration and then there they were doing like cutesy children's book stuff, which I didn't like. So I wanted to come back to graphic design and they wanted me to take an extra year so what happened was, you know, I said something like, oh, it's not like because Lori missed two weeks of graphic design. I'm not like engineering. Like now a bridge is going to fall on somebody's head, you know, <laughs> 50 years from now, you know, because Lori missed a semester. It's just design, I said. And then the head of the design department, that's what you don't say to the head of the design department. He said, well, now you can't come back at all. So I was kicked out of graphic design. So I went into painting, um, which they didn't care what you did. So I just did everything. I took all these electives, including a lot of graphic design electives. And that, then things got better because I, I took an elective with this guy, Michael Glass, who sadly died very young. But I remember doing this uh, assignment where we were doing record covers for uh, John Cage, C-A-G-E, and J.S. Bach, B-A-C-H. So the, I did this thing for John Cage where I used, you know, like Tester's uh, model uh uh, car paint, you know, in silver. And it was very like bold and bright and splash. And he loved it. And he made me feel like for the first time that I wasn't some kind of criminal uh, doing something that was uh, cheerful or doing something that was bright or doing something that was fun. And, um, and then, you know, when I graduated, I started getting clients like Fiorucci and places like that, that wanted fun, you know, and they wanted, uh, something bright and pop, you know? So uh, I ended up getting the, the education I needed because I was in three different departments and I still do all those things, you know? So anyway, for me, it's normal. But of course, it's much easier to make a living and be accepted and get all the prizes and, and so forth when you do one thing. And I, I do know that. So I've made it very difficult for myself, but I can't help it. The thing is I see is you're enjoying yourself as, as you do all oh, this. Oh, I have more fun than anybody. I'm very lucky. Yeah. I think everyone has to find themselves, don't they? One would hope so. We're, we're in a world where it's set up where 
if they tell you what to do, you're supposed to do it and you'll be successful. But I know a lot of miserable people have found that doesn't work. It is. And I think what they say, bourgeoisie. I wanted to shock everybody. And then I started having students, like I said, not in the beginning, but in the late 90s, early 2000s, that they just wanted to please me. And I was pretending, yeah. you know, what it's like they were thinking I was a pretend art director and they were, what do you want to see? And I would say like, it's not about that. What do I want to see? Uh, yeah. What do you have to say? You need to have something to say. And uh, that was sort of a new idea because they, 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 they were afraid. They were afraid of displeasing me or this imaginary art director word for to me, the idea of being in school is, oh boy, you get to experiment. You know, uh, you have a blank yeah. slate and you're young and you can do whatever you want. Um, you're paying. They're not paying you yet. So this is the time to experiment, have fun and shock people. But that feeling was not what was happening, you know, in 99 or 2000 or whatever. And maybe not since then for probably good reasons, I guess. And also because um, of my background, I, I mean, I guess I, I just, it didn't even occur to me that I would have to put food on the table or I wasn't thinking about that. And uh, I should have maybe, I, I don't feel like I'm capable of uh, selling out. It's not just that I didn't want to and I chose to be artsy and I chose to be, you know, take advantage of the freedoms that I had. It was just sort of so built into my personality and my upbringing to be, go for self-expression rather than, you know, whatever the safe choices were. Um, I, I really can't explain it better than that. If somebody said, well, now you sell out, or what do you do to make money? I don't know. But you're able to make your rent, right? No. Oh, yeah. okay. I'm not making money at all now. We're in the same boat. I don't, I'm surviving <laughs> because I don't have rent because when I was, uh, very young, I bought a loft in 1981 with money that I was going to get from my family to inherit. Mm -hmm. I got the money. It was then 140 grand. I bought a 2,000 square foot loft for that. And I parlayed that into the apartment I have now many years later because I sold it for a lot more. Uh, so I own this place that I live in now outright. And that has given me an incredible advantage and amount of freedom and security that I own my place. Of course, everybody knows that doing books is a fabulous way to make lots of money. <laughs> so all I'm doing is books right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, life's too short. To, you know, like there, there was the sign I had to some people was very distressing. I can't afford to waste my time making money. I mean, if you think about it also, what it's just practical. Like if that is your goal, I think you're an idiot to go into anything except, you know, banking or something like, you know, as long as you're here, you, you're doing some kind of art thing because hopefully yeah. it's something that you really enjoy. So the, the, the point is to take it as far as you can go. And to me, um, design was what other people think, you know, art, art, or with a capital A or painting is in, you know, I, I, I never thought of it as just a, like a job. And I always felt exactly the same way about painting and doing my own work that I did as doing work clients, I felt like I had, an, uh, I had an occasion, I had a chance, and I had a freedom to do something really fun and expressive and wonderful. And it didn't matter that it was some client asking me to do something, even if it was something silly, um, I would try to make uh, the most of it, you know, like to me to do a shopping bag or something 
is very exciting and wonderful and great. It's not less than doing a painting or less than hanging in a museum. Uh, to me, it was absolutely, you know, I'm, that, that's what I mean when I say I'm not a professional. I'm because I'm uh, an amateur comes from, you know, to love. And uh, I'm doing this because I love it. Other people have this way of getting in your head and going, oh, well, you're not worth this. You're not worth that. And my take on that is we remember that stuff and it either emboldens us or it slows us down. And years ago, that stuff used to slow me down. That's why I think uh, the Mistakes on Purpose workshop that I teach is really important, even more in the digital world, which we've all been living in since, what, 88 or 89? Something that, in there, um, yeah. But to get something human in there and where they sort of collide, yeah. that's where something, in my opinion, that's where something interesting happens is, is that contrast. But the thing with Mistakes on Purpose is that the reason, one of the reasons I, I do it is that when you're two or three or four, you're drawing, right? All little teeny kids draw. And then something happens to you and me and everybody else that goes into something arty is that we keep going because at some point when you're four or five, somebody says that doesn't look like a dinosaur and then you're screwed. And from then on, either you stop, you know, you, you freak out, you know, people, it starts to become problem solving. Okay. So, and especially when you get, and you keep going and you keep drawing, you try to get good at it and you get good at it. And then you go to art school and then it's really problem solving, whether it's architecture or graphic design or um, any of those things. Um, it's all about problem solving. So you've lost forever that pure joy of the act of drawing. You're not trying to get anywhere. You're not trying to get from A to B. You're not trying to invent a new fabulous widget. You're just drawing because it's fun to draw. So in the workshop, it's nothing to do with drawing, but it's the idea of the uh, pointlessness is the point. It's like you you bring in the random. So it's a whole, I don't like to describe exactly what we do in the workshop because it's about surprise. It should be a surprise, yeah. but suffice it to say that what I do in the workshop is create chaos. And from that chaos, you know, I always talk about the guy that invented Velcro. He was walking in the woods and he got birds stuck on his pants and then he stuck them together. So, oh, what could this be? And then he invented yeah. Velcro. But what he didn't do was sit down in a perfect white laboratory and say, what the world needs now is a new way to stick stuff together. I don't know why he comes from the Bronx. But I know. <laughs> he came from Switzerland. From, from the, from the, uh, what the world needs is a new way to stick stuff together. He came from the French speaking Switzerland. So, but he didn't do that. So he just, something happened and he's like, oh, what could, be, what could this be? And those are the magic word. What could this be? So, so anyway, what we do in the workshop is try to create the kind of chaos that they would have a hundred years ago or more and um, see what happens. And very often really great things do happen. You are listening to Radio Flaw. Challenging Flaw. the bourgeoisie since 1923. Gams. Noun. Legs. Gangbusters in a two-way stretch. Noun. Mother-in-law. Gas. Verb. To engage in conversation. Gate. Noun. Youth. Gate mouth. Noun. A gossip. Giggle. Noun. Professor. Goo. Noun. Luncheon. Good Joe. Noun. Popular guy. Graduate. Verb. To end one's prison term. Grass. 
Noun, crew haircut. Gravy, noun, profits. Guzzle in foam. Verb, drink in beer. Radio Flow. part of our deal. Guitar, drums, load up, stun. So come on. Cool, man. did relocate his shoulder. It wasn't lethal, was it? He torched a Mercedes. Well, it's only a car, but the memory of that punch will last a lifetime. That's it, partner. The LOS had a task force on the phone and the operation is compromised. I got a call from El Caprice on an open line. That is the hand we have been dealt this moment.
I think you proved your courage once and for all by beating up that little man. <laughs> Just think what you could do to a second grader now. We'll put them in Grandma's fruitcake. <sighs> they refused Marino's credit card. We know this guy. The badness is happening right before us. It may look simple, but it takes layering, and behind it are the Italians. The shipment came in from Capri. It had fresh produce, tomatoes, mozzarella cheese, basil, a drizzle of extra virgin olive oil. Mmm. But it's not that simple. Not at all. A little olive oil goes a long way. It's about respect. El Caprice is dodging everyone. Well, Sweetex said he didn't want mayonnaise. Oh, I just wish I had a second chance. I tell you, I do things a little differently in my present state of mind. He's got a gun!
I'd like a Pepsi free. If you want a Pepsi Tubbs, you're gonna have to pay for it. There's a deal on Coke going down tonight. They have to wait for the things. Hmm. <laughs> Let them scoff. No. Not ever. Once again, Modern Mimes.
See modern Mimas this Saturday. November 9. At Krakenfest. Hall an der Beach, Florida. Info at krakenmusicfest.com Hard. Adjective. Good. Hardware. Noun. Flashy jewelry. Harris from Paris. Noun. Radio comedian. Head chick. Noun. Your sweetheart. Homie. Noun. Someone from your hometown. Heavy lard. Noun. Sad story. Home cooked. Adjective. The best. Hot licks. Fast musical tempo. Icky. Adjective. Conservative person. Idiot. Noun. Educated moron. Iron man. Noun. Silver dollar. Did you remember to save your 1936 calendar? Why the hell not? Because next year is 2020, and the daylight savings people just said fall back already, right? And more important here, 1936 days are the same as 2020. So you can reuse your old 1936 calendar if you've remembered where you put it. Do you? If not, well, let Flom solve all your problems with our very own 1936 pin-up calendar. Available in the Flom Limited Edition store. Featuring Lexi Nicole, photography by Cliff Buttermilk George, and photo montage by Steve Mahalo. On heavy cardstock printed by Fixafile.com, shipped flat in genuine manila envelope. Suitable for framing or just hanging on the wall. Get your own while they last. Head to flom.us slash flommers or flom.us slash commerce. Both URLs work. How about that? Confuse friends and relatives by adjusting to the time change before everyone else. Order your 1936 Flomus calendar today. Flom calendar. For next year. Available now. Easily keep track of days. For you. Or not for you. Great gift item. Because holidays. From coast to coast. I think money's an excuse for a lack of art anyway. I don't care who you are. Donald Trump. Who the hell. Without creativity. Without life then you are truly unable to go straight up the devil's ass. This is my house now. It's my house. It's my room. Son, you Daddy's got a panty house. on your head. Nicholas Cage. Hey, man, I got on Swiss cotton underpants. You are crazy. And now, looking back, Cage Tober 2019 with Amanda Cook. Let my wife leave, and then I'll give you what you want! They'll kill us, Sarah. They'll just kill us if I do. October came around this year. I saw people taking part in Inktober, where they draw an ink picture from a prompt of scary 
spooky words. And though I am an artist, I am not skilled technically in drawing, anything like that. So I loved the idea of having this month-long project. And I saw that my friend Cody Scott was doing a thing in October where he was watching black and white horror movies and documenting those on his Instagram. Last year, I had been posting little reviews of the movies I had been watching. So I had been making these quick cook crits. I had recently been thinking about the wild career of Nicolas Cage, so it should be noted that I don't love Nicolas Cage. I find him pretty fascinating of a guy. I, I don't necessarily love pure talent. What I'm looking for in someone is passion and fire. Certainly that is what Nicolas Cage is bringing to roles most of the time. Cagetober, every day for the month I would watch it different Nicolas Cage movie. I wanted it to be as spooky and um, punishing as possible, so I wanted to focus on Nicolas Cage movies post-National Treasure, which arguably is the time I think we stop thinking of him as a viable leading man. I did kind of dip into some old Nicolas Cage movies also. I guess... Nicholas Cage was having money issues, and maybe in the year like 2007, he just really went nuts and spent um, basically all of his 150 million fortune. It looks like in 2009 is when the IRS came calling, and he owed 6.3 million to them. He just sort of went wild. He bought 15 homes. He bought a private island. He uh, bid on a stolen T-Rex skull and then ended up having no money. So he just started taking basically any role that was given to him to pay off his debts. 2005, he's made at least 51 films, which this October I watched 30 Two films in total of Nicolas Cage. Then the calculations that I could do two more Cagetobers. There are at least 62 other films I could still keep watching. First, it was easy sailing. You know, I like to watch movies. Eventually, it kind of went a little crazy. I think the most surprising thing that happened was I started off um, with probably zero attraction to Nicolas Cage. He's just not for me in any um, period of his life, just not someone I would normally be attracted to. So this kind of weird Stockholm Syndrome thing happened to me where I started feeling like, fonder towards him and emotionally invested in him. It's like every day this was the only man I was seeing and kind of come on screen and my heart would skip a beat like there he is and maybe see him look a little different like he'd have a beard and I'd think oh handsome for sure I wouldn't have thought that at the beginning of October. 
And I'll see a really young Nicolas Cage and just be like, so dreamy. And currently at the end of Cagetober and I feel um, a loss. Like it's weird to not be seeing him every day. That is, I think over the course of really watching someone through many projects, you really get attuned to what they are about. I could tell you exactly what behaviors Nicolas Cage will go through when he gets really angry or when he cries, what his face will look like. And whether or not the movies are good or whether this acting performance is good, you're noticing all the ways he's trying. If another actor he's acting with is really bringing it, he'll kind of feel inspired and bring it. So a couple of the movies that really surprised me, (laughs) there was this movie called Zandali, which I think was maybe around 1993, and I just really needed a break from the kind of overly machismo guns and men fighting and this movie looked like it was about I don't know a romantic entanglement or something so it looked terrible but it looked at least different and it was a young Nicolas Cage so I thought I'd give it a go and was a delight Nicolas Cage plays kind of the other man um breaking up a relationship of a husband and wife and he is a painter and there's probably never a more appropriate role for Nicolas Cage than playing an artist that's what he is and uh, this sort of manic crazy energy works so perfectly in this role and I didn't see it coming if you want to do your own Cagetober, I'd say oof, tread carefully. Many of these movies are not worth your time, even if Nicholas is good in them. They, I don't know, at this point, I've watched so many, it's like, I've blown out my palate like I had an cra- a crazy spicy meal and now I can't taste anything. Watching um, a non-Nicolas Cage project is now a little weird, a little dull. If you'd like to check out my Cagetober journey, you can look at my Instagram at Yoki and you will see images and clips from the movies I watched and my thoughts on each movie. One of the things I was rating with each movie was the, the caginess level. How, how much cage are we getting? How is, is Nicolas Cage not being Nicolas Cage here? I start to really <laughs> not know what's a good movie anymore. Shoot him again. What fool? His soul's still dancing. Back at home. 
Radio Flom, now within the bounds of the law. Once again, Teenage Death Trap. Jack. Noun. Name for all male friends. Jeff. Noun. A boring individual. Jive Cutter. Noun. Modern dancer. Joe Blow. Noun. 
musician whose wings. Juice, noun, intoxicating beverage. Junior jerk, noun, stupid teenager. Knock, verb, give, example, knock me a kiss. Copacetic, adjective, everything's fine. I have a hard time distinguishing traditionalists from right-wing, I guess. Well, if you unite Nietzsche with Marxist dialectics then you would conclude that the civil indeed fucked up and that at long last, a tyrant would rise up. But the tyrant should have been bright, not just funny. With a rocking chair with gold and silver and mahogany decorations. You ever heard that story of Caligula having Romans attack the ocean? I want to have Roman soldiers run into the waves and attack with swords, then use the photography of it to make paintings of various females in Roman outfits. Large paintings, to furbish a palace and bedroom then have sex in such a room. I mean, Caligula wasn't exactly a traditionalist. Life was good when we were the only ones fornicating.
This was Decay, the latest release from Of This Earth, the music project of Flomis Brian Mendes. To keep you feeling on top of the world, medical knowledge proves that nature should produce about two pints of liver bile, the vital digestive juice your liver makes, each day. Otherwise, your food may not digest properly and leave you feeling dull, headachey, sluggish. Therefore, do as thousands now do. Take Carter's Little Liver Pills, as directed tonight. Tomorrow, see if you don't wake up feeling glad to be alive. Get Carter's at any drugstore. 25 cents. Lamps. Noun. Your eyes. Last shout. Noun. Latest fashion. Lay down the cow. Verb. Put your shoes away. Leaky. Noun. One who talks too much. Legit. Noun. The real thing. Lemon. Noun. An inferior performance or thing. Licorice stick. Noun. Clarinet. Light drip drizzle. Noun. Rainy weather. Light operator. Noun. One who doesn't make good. Lightning and thunder. Noun. Whiskey and soda. Lily whites. Noun. Bed sheets. Long hair. Noun. Symphony musicians. Shut me down with the push of your butt, but you 
doubts you've heard about Mr. Hepster's Jackpot Dictionary. You mean Mr. No, Saria, I mean Mr. Hepster. Yeah, that's me. Now I'll admit Mr. Webster was okay. But Jive Talk is a lingo all the about you today. No. Radio Flom is brought to you in part by Cab Calloway's Hepster Dictionary. 1938. And the most complete dictionary of Jive words and phrases ever presented. Hepcat's Jive Talk Dictionary. Edited by Lou Shelley. 1945. Featured in its pages are luminaries of the age. Frank Sinatra. Louis Armstrong. Duke Ellington. Count Basie. Billy Holiday. Mills Brothers. The Andrews Sisters. Artie Shaw. Gene Krupa. Harry James, and of course, Cab Calloway, among others. Names who spoke jive long before June Cleaver would find work as a translator in 1980. What will your slang look like in 80 years, woke Stan? Carter's Little Liver Pills. Fixafile.com. Great printing at low prices. Diego Valley at twitter.com slash Diego Valley underscore LTHM and soundcloud.com slash Diego Valley Music Seventh Swami at seventhswami.com and we now present our chicken our larking fire extinguisher squadcast.fm Remote interviews for professional podcasters. If you're fronting a podcast and you're off the cop on MEK got you in the doghouse, try squadcast.fm. You'll cap your righteous riffs right out of the feed box. Don't be a corn butt from Connecticut. Get your boots on and believe the hoopla. Use squadcast.fm. Shit, I don't know what I do for the credits. I... I can't use chat again. Again. Oh. I'll just use Cliff's old stuff. What's second best to have in real Cliff? Old Cliff, I guess. From Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world. This has been Radio Flom. Recorded live before a studio. Contributors this week, in order, were... Lorraine Richardson. Steve Mehalo. Jeu de Pré. Kevin Scott Brown. Vicky. Milk Surface. Mehalo Kitty. DGTLCLR. David Loredi Mola. Kadir Rein, Jason Malmberg, Anton Music Ubix Liama Circuit Remix, Honorine Cathy Bauman, Julia Algretti, Laura Cooper, Darius Forrest, Christina Palmé, Graav, Tristicia Languorem, N. Rhone. Also featured were Les annonces de Jason Spear. 
Audrey Daguet et Cliff Allen. Radio Flam is produced by Steve Mehalo avec Milk Surface comme lui-même. Theme music by Chelsea Davis. Sound design and engineering by Steve Mahalo. Radio Flam is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. However, recordings of contributors or guests of Radio Flam are still protected under international copyright law. Radio Flam contains works features for review, opinion, critique, and or artistic transformation, and may contain adult content and nudity. Want to be featured on Radio Flom? Drop us a note at www.flom.us slash contact. Flom is a modern art game app, art history resource, faux historical art movement that uses new media to generate interest in art history and education. Flom is an online connection to art history, music, and beyond through Tumblr, Instagram, and other social medias. We are all Flomists, and you can be too. Donations graciously accepted at patreon.com slash Flomus. We are at Flomus on most social medias. Flom is sometimes explained, but usually not. This is Cliff Allen saying thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, well, do something about it. Marble Town. Noun. A graveyard. Mass Action Man. Noun. Communist. Melted Out. Noun. Broke. Mitt Flopper. Noun. Handshaker. Mitt Pounding. Verb. Applauding. Moo juice. Noun. Milk. Nicks out. Noun. To erase. Off the cop. Adjective. Outmoded. Office piano. Noun. Typewriter. On the horn. Verb. Telephoning. Orchestration. Noun. An overcoat. Pair of pipes. Noun. The singing voice. Pounders. Noun. Police. Fizz. Noun. Your face. Pickers. Noun. Your fingers. Platter. Noun. A musical record. Popper stopper. Noun. A smart old man. Portrait. Noun. Your face. Potato masher. Noun. Drumstick. Pumpkin. Noun. The moon or sun. Pussy with a fluid drive. Noun. A skunk. Ranch. Noun. Room where marijuanas are dispensed. Rank. Verb. To criticize. Red dye. Noun. Catsup. Red ink. Noun. Italian wine. Rock pile. Noun, a very tall building. Rug cutter. Noun, a very good dancer. Sad sal. Noun, old fashioned. Salty, adjective, rough.
Santa from Atlanta. Noun. Easy mark. Scratch. Noun. Folding money. Second front. Noun. Girdle. Smoke. Noun. Cheap liquor. Snow from Fresno. Noun. Drug addict. Tea fight. Noun. A party. Timber. Noun. Toothpick. Togged to the bricks. Adjective. Dressed in the latest fashion. Trickyicky. Noun. Smart Alec. Trig the wig. Noun. Think hard. Vacuum cleaner. Noun. Your lungs. Violin cases. Noun. Large shoes. Walking the plank. Verb. Falling in love. Wham from Amsterdam. Noun. Swell fellow. White one. Noun. Your shirt. Wear a smile. Verb. To be in the nude. Woolies. Noun. Winter clothing. Yellow eye. Noun. The yolk of an egg. Oscar Walter Fahrenholt. Real at Rear Admiral Oscar Walter Fahrenholt, May 2nd, 1845 through June 30th, 1920, was an officer in the United States Navy during the American Civil War, which was totally fought on land. With the, okay, Navy guy, good for you. The Spanish-American War, totally fought on land also, and is the first enlisted man. Nope.